Hey, chocolate lovers! Welcome to 2020, and welcome to the wrap-up for season two of Chocolate on the Road. For the next five weeks, every Wednesday, we'll bring to you a full-length interview done for one of the previous episodes from the entirety of season two. This week, we have a full-length interview done with Matt Caputo, CEO of Caputo's Market in Delhi, which is one of the oldest and best-known craft chocolate destinations in the world. In this interview, Matt and I get into why we buy craft chocolate, which was the topic of the episode I interviewed him for, but we also touch a bit on how Matt got into chocolate in the first place and what he sees in the future of craft chocolate. Enjoy! Can you tell me a bit about Caputo's and, and when the family business started involving chocolate? Yeah, so my name is Matt Caputo, and we've had a retail specialty food store for, gosh, 21 years now. And boy, we got into chocolate, not at the very beginning, but I kind of fell down the chocolate rabbit hole in the early 2000s. I want to say like 2002, right around then. I'm not exactly sure about the date. But we had already been open for several years, and I just uh, realized that our, our chocolate set was not on par with the rest of the categories that we were really serious and geeky about. And so I uh, decided to change that, started educating myself, reading lots of books, and just kind of became obsessed in a serious way. Do you have any recollection about how much those bars were? I mean, they vary significantly depending on what which brand, but they were anywhere from let's say five to seven dollars at the time for the consumer price. You know, like Amadei when we got a hold of it, which I can't remember exactly what year they had their three, the Chuao, Porcelana, and the Nine eventually, which were considerably more expensive, but they were kind of outliers. Yeah, did Valrona have the the single origin bars themselves at that point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Valrona has had single origin uh, bars for quite some time. When we first started buying, they even had some uh, Chuao in their lineup. Um, it was part of their limited edition series. They had a Porcelana as well, and they've, they've changed that line over time. But yeah, they've had they've had single origin bars since then for sure. So in in the chain from from the farm to the final consumer, how would you characterize the role of a chocolate retailer? Chocolate retailer, you know, I think has m- many different roles. Most retailers are just a, an outlet for it to, you know, get picked up by the customer. And so then it relies on, on in packaging to do the selling. Customer awareness has to already be there. When we started at Caputo's, there was no customer awareness. The customer was not ready to buy it. So it was not something that we could just put on the shelves and, and have those bars sell themselves. I mean, way back then, no one was comfortable buying a $5 bar, let alone a $7 bar, some of the more expensive ones. So we hand sold them just like we do. And the the approach we took was the same way we approach the cheese counter. You know, if someone walks up to the cheese counter and has questions, wants to sample something, you basically have a monger guide you through the entire process, you know, helping you 
find your preferences, introduce you to, you know, why you would pay so much for, for something. And so we did that. And anytime anyone would walk into the chocolate aisle, we had a strict rule that uh, someone that was knowledgeable, of course, had to be on staff at the time. Most of the time, it was me or one of my good friends that also worked at the store. We would just run right over and be like, hey, can we help you find anything? You know, we actually have most of these open to sample. We'd love to, you know, help you understand what the difference is. And, and before the too long, we'd even just be putting a plate with something on it in front of them to get the conversation started. And it would go from there. You know, we'd spend anywhere from just that quick interaction and a little sample of something. Uh, but for the most part, a high percentage of the time that turned into a broader conversation where we would be spending anywhere from 10 minutes to an hour with each and every customer really helping them understand that chocolate should be about cacao and it's the seed of a fruit and it should taste like fruit and dispelling the myths of, of what chocolate should and shouldn't taste like and just introducing people to it in the same way that we came to love it being about cacao, how cacao can taste different depending on where it goes from. And uh, as part of that little conversation, we would always include a little what we would refer to as grocery store chocolate, basically something really dark roasted, tons of cocoa butter and just oodles and oodles of vanilla. And we use it as like, this doesn't taste like cacao, this and all these other things do. And that was really, really effective, shall we say. We found that the people in Utah, just you could see the light bulb go on. Especially if you, we gave them the, the control chocolate, that grocery store chocolate at the beginning. Um, and then tasted them through, say, two or three or maybe four or five, you know, very expressive terroir driven chocolates. And then go back to the initial one, say, this is the one you tasted first. Remember that one? Now tell us if this tastes like cacao or if this tastes like vanilla. And you could just see them, you know, a high percentage of, of our customers would just tumble right down the rabbit hole with us and connect to it in a really significant way. So we found Utah was really fertile ground for, for connoisseurship, but we had to, we had to push it forward one customer at a time for sure. Do you find that that kind of mothering is still necessary for customers? Yeah, I do think it's still necessary. We do it in a broader way now. We we still do the same thing. We have what's called the chocolate file. And while we don't carry every single one of them open to sample like we would with, say, cheese, at Kudos, we have what's called a chocolate czar at each location. And they're kind of in charge of making sure the set stays good. And the, more importantly, the chocolate file stays organized so that they can quickly access the bar they're looking for and provide samples of it within like 10 seconds of, of trying to find it for a customer that would be wanting to try it. So we still do a lot of that one-on-one, -on -one, but we don't feel that the need for that has ever subsided and, and is, is just as important now as it ever has been. Uh, but we also do classes. In fact, if you go to our website and check on the events tab, there's just, we do an average of about four classes a week. And not all of them are chocolate, but a good percentage of them are. We also do a lot of private classes, and the chocolate class is, is really popular for private classes. And while I, it has gotten, even though we have a population of people here that, say, has a, a higher percentage of chocolate connoisseurs, it's not as necessary in Utah now to have that same discussion of why pay that much for chocolate. I think we have a lot of people that understand the value of, of 
terroir and what it means and that you can, should be exploring a taste of place through, through chocolate. That being said, the need will never go away for that. And it's still a drop in the bucket, but we do notice with those types of clientels that are already into it. Um, it's still important to engage them in discussion, regardless of how educated they are, because just like, you know, cheesemonger at a, at a cheese case, people want to taste it. They have something new that they're interested in. And it's, you know, we still have stuff that's around $5, but the vast majority of our set is, let's say, in between $8 and $20 a bar. They want to be able to try that first. They want to be able to get someone's take on it just like you would with, with cheese or in a wine tasting room or something like that. So I, I think it's it's just as important today as it ever has been to connect people, not only with the stories and the why a, a chocolate bar tastes a certain way, but with actual tastes of it too. When did Kapudas begin offering classes in general? We had been doing cooking classes since the very beginning. I believe we were we started officially in 1998. First chocolate classes. Not sure exactly what year, but it was pretty quickly around where our interest was. Because as I educated myself about the chocolate, put it on our shelves, I quickly realized that me being the only one passionate about it wasn't enough. That we those bars weren't going to all sell themselves on those shelves. So I decided that we, we needed to have tasting classes. And in fact, the first chocolate classes that we did, I want to say we're in 2003, maybe 2004. I'm not, not 100% sure. We did the first tasting classes that were, you know, they weren't cooking. They weren't, they were just chocolate appreciation classes. Basically talking about the same things that I just talked to you about, starting with the grocery store chocolate, then getting introduced to the taste of real chocolate, a little bit of the history, why, uh, why they taste different, a little bit of the science behind it, the chocolate making process, so on and so forth. And then the, the grocery store chocolate a second time and then ending with some sort of, of, you know, really special chocolate is the last taste. Um, the first ones we did were free. They were really popular. They filled up immediately. And so then we started charging at some point, the price just kept on going up and up. Now we feel really good about where it's at. The, the price for the classes um, is $25. And we feel like, uh, and our our customers, I think, would agree that the, the key thing that we always want to keep in mind with our classes is that they should truly be educational. We never want someone to come and feel like they just paid to hear a commercial. And with whom are those classes the most popular with like what age group or, or demographic it's a good mix it's funny at first you would assume that it's it's mostly women and indeed i think at first we saw a lot of that about like people you know women signing up and for a date night or something and bringing their husbands but a lot of the times it was the husband that had the biggest impact on and if you talk to brian Ruggles from the Utah Chocolate Society, I think he would uh, agree with the fact that the membership is surprisingly to most people skewed towards men and younger, I would say. I would say anywhere from 20 years old to 50 years old, you'd probably capture about 
70% of the population of our classes. So what seems to be the biggest factor in people deciding to buy a specific bar, like one over another? For us and the way we sell it, it's definitely packaging, number one. I hate to say it, but it's absolutely true. Like people um, subconsciously almost decide whether something's good or not before they take the first bite. I think the you know, famous adage or, or saying from chefs is always that the eye takes the first bite. And with the case of chocolate, that is certainly the packaging. And then after that, it's just taste. Like people will really connect to some people will really connect to one bar. Other people will really connect to another. Maybe it's something that reminds them of something they tasted in the past or seems really new and exotic to them. I mean, there's any number of reasons that people might connect to one taste over another. But first and foremost, I think it has to be good, but interesting. During a class, taste becomes more important. Packaging becomes less important. When someone's buying something off the shelves, maybe getting a little impromptu tasting, they would probably see the packaging first before they even got the taste. So I think it becomes even more important. And then on a broader sense, stores that offer less service, less opportunity to taste, packaging becomes omnipotently important. So when you encounter a new maker or a new bar, what gets you excited about that particular bar or product? Um, you know, I, I taste a lot of chocolate. Um, in fact, I taste more new chocolate than I taste brands we already carry. We, we have a different company that does wholesale of, of, uh, chocolate all throughout the United States. And we've been really successful at that at the fancy food show alone. We had over 70 new companies deliver samples into my hands, most of which I'd never tried before, many of which I've never seen before, never heard of before. And it's my job to hear of things. It's just it's astounding to me the, the rate of new brands that are launching. And I have to say, for the most part, it's not as enjoyable as it may sound. The vast majority of them I find interesting, uh, but not good. What I'm looking for now when a new brand sends me chocolate, if I'm going to put it on Caputo shelves or or distribute it through our, our wholesale company, I want it to be successful. So I cannot ignore packaging. I do first blind taste test everything. So everything that comes through our doors, we, we have almost weekly blind tasting sessions with our crew. But the chocolate ones, I do mostly with a smaller uh, set of tasters. And it's totally blind. No one knows what they're tasting. And the things that we identify as both interesting and good, and of course, there's no truly objective standard for that. I'm just using my own taste buds, my own preferences. And if it strikes me as something that's interesting and really good quality, we'll go to the next step and look at the packaging. If the packaging is something that looks like is helping to tell that tale and is going to be attractive to the consumer, then we start to look at, at other factors, but those two are by far the most important for my decision-making matrix. So when did you notice that sort of tipping point when there were more makers and it started being you weren't looking for craft chocolate makers, but they were coming to you? Do you remember any kind of 
point? You know, I don't know when it started exactly. I mean, a priori started 13 years ago. That was our, our wholesale company. The first several years, you know, I was a retailer. I didn't know what I was doing. We didn't really get much traction. We started noticing people uh, coming to us probably about five years ago, and it's just intensified every year. And now at this point, I would say for the last two or three years that I've noticed that it's not just because of us. It's just because there is a flood of brands on the market. I think that there, there's been a lot of talk of this in the amongst the craft chocolate intelligentsia. You see it in various you know social media groups where um, certain people will say what size the market is and how much overinvestment there has been from at every stage of production from uh, cacao to now you see like governmental organizations getting in and investing in a really, really significant way. The fact that it's very, very easy to become a chocolate maker. It takes, and I don't mean to say that it's easy to make chocolate. It's an incredible labor of love and is very, very difficult to do, especially well. But what I'm saying is it requires very little investment when you compare it to say becoming a salami maker or a cheese maker or any of the other common you know, categories of specialty food, becoming a chocolate maker requires actually very, very little investment. And so it's super easy for brands to get involved. And there's just an astounding number of them every single day fielding multiple uh, requests from new chocolate makers. We haven't counted this year, but we counted in 2018. We got samples from over 400 new chocolate companies, more than one every single day. So on a slightly related note, is there any or what is the difference between how customers purchase chocolates online versus when they come into the, the store itself or one of the stores? Oh, that's a great question. So our success in the online channel is much more limited than our success on the bricks and mortar and, and wholesale. And any success that we've had has been uh, very recent. But what we definitely see is one of two things on our website, Caputo's website. When people are buying online, they're either buying in response to some sort of media article, and then they might buy one bar, they might buy two bars or whatever was featured and maybe throw another item on there. But the orders from those tend to be considerably smaller, especially since we, we offer free shipping on all chocolate, no minimum order on, on Caputo's. So that, that kind of, you know, is a double-edged sword, right? Like it makes people more likely to pull the trigger, but it's also more likely to create smaller orders, especially in response to, you know, any media articles highlighting a single bar. But it's still a really, really significant way that, that people get turned on to specific chocolates that, that we carry that aren't, you know, necessarily widely available. And then the other way is, you know, people that are coming to us because they know that if they have a problem, just like they would in our store, the Caputos have been in the food industry for a long, long time. And we take care of people. If there's issues, we, we make it right. Um, if something's damaged, we make it right. If they don't like it, we make it right. So we get a lot of people that are what I would call just dyed in the wool chocolate connoisseurs that come to our site and are probably, you know, going to buy, uh, 
a wide array of bars, not necessarily gigantic orders, but larger than those customers coming just to, because they were curious about whatever bar the New York Times talked about and really want to try several different things at a time. And so I would say those orders were larger. And of course, as, as I'm sure you well know, they can be ordering maybe because it's the first time it's available in the country, or maybe it's just one of their old favorites and they, they haven't tried it in a while, or maybe it's something that they feel like they, they always need to have in their pantry because it's just an absolute favorite. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that answers the question well, but that's, that's what I would see, see on line for at least from our vantage point. So maybe it's it's easier to order, but people don't tend to buy that differently, or they tend to buy for a specific person purpose. They don't just happen upon the chocolate aisle. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no opportunity to give samples or you know show various things. They have to navigate to certain things. So with the way we sell, people kind of have to be searching for something. I guess you could wander through our site and, you know, be introduced to new things. And there's, there's a good amount of information on our site from basically about each brand and about each bar in particular. But it's, you know, it's not as easy to navigate through that and find different things that would appeal to you as it, as it is in a store where you're just standing there and at any given second, you can pick up one of, you know, 500 different chocolate bars, look at it, read the back. Um, you can navigate through websites like that, but in terms of like looking at everything as a whole, it's it's really daunting to do on a website. Have you seen anything in any of the other industries, particularly cheese, that you wish craft chocolate would learn from, or that craft chocolate consumers would learn from? That's a good question. I think the big, the first one that comes to mind is understanding that that people need to taste it. And we've already discussed that at great length. I think you can see why it's so important. But the other thing that I would love to see craft chocolate do more of is more like the wine world, actually. It's not less like cheese. Like with wine, for example, you know, having country of origin on the bottle of wine is not sufficient. You know, as a, as a wine connoisseur, um, you need to give more specifics than that. And I think at risk of, of over, overwhelming the general populace, but if you do it in the right way, you can just give the most important bullet points to the, the consumer that doesn't necessarily have the bandwidth for all that information. But at the same time, you can provide the information for people that are really eager to know more than just Ecuador or Jamaica or Venezuela. Because as you well know, like, you know, Venezuela might have some really great stuff and there's, there's other stuff that's really, really not so good. And so I love seeing the direction that you see a lot in the wine world of not just listing country of origin or the region or the, the varietal name, but actually the farm, you know, like say, say Pump Street's line is a perfect example. That's the first one that comes to mind where every single bar, even their inclusion lines points out the farm where the cacao comes from. And I think without that sort of connecting people to really, really important farming and really important farmers, that the industry is going to struggle to grow. Because at the end of the day, if, if chocolate makers can just really easily switch their bean sources around, 
based on what's the cheapest, and it's hard to blame them for that, then it kind of suppresses the price of beans. And so I think if we want to be able to charge more for chocolate bars, obviously farmers need to share in that. And I, I think one of the only ways that we're going to see that is farms or farmers becoming brands into themselves so that it's a meaningful thing to a consumer. So the consumer is looking for it kind of like, you know, they did with Chuao for so long or Porcelana, but at the farm level, that's what, that's what I would love to see. You know, I want to see rockstar farmers being able to charge lots for their beans and, and people clamoring to taste those bars, not just because of the maker, but because of where the, where the beans come from. I remember when I was first getting into craft chocolate, I, there were a few names and regions that popped out to me. And just sort of unconsciously, I was trying to put them onto a map and I couldn't quite get there because it would, sometimes it would be the name of the place. Sometimes it would be the name of the farmers and those would be the name of the, the farm itself, like the like Camino Verde mm-hmm. and then like um, Balao. And it was like, oh, that was the same thing. When people, if they give any reason, when people say why they decide not to buy a particular bar of chocolate, what is the reason? From our wholesale company, it's it's hard to say because people are very unlikely to just blame packaging. Sometimes they are. And some of the, the bigger buyers for bigger stores will just be like, nope, that doesn't work with the aesthetic of our store. Literally just being like, don't care how good it is. That packaging isn't going to fly in our stores. And I think, you know, some of the, the smaller stores are less likely to say stuff like that, or maybe even think that they mean stuff like that. And I, it's really hard to get answers like that. I wish I, I could give a better answer than this, but especially on the consumer level, you don't really get the negative feedback. No one, no one ever really volunteers that. They, you gave them something with a smile on your face and seemed to really like it. So generally what they're going to reference is just preferring one of the other things you gave them more without really getting into the specifics of why the other one didn't strike their fancy. And But I'd bring it all back to the two things that I talked about earlier, a subconscious decision because of the packaging or a conscious decision because of the taste and whether or not they liked it or not. So. As someone who's been forming relationships with both chocolate makers and consumers for years, what's one thing that you wish the general public knew about the craft chocolate industry? Well, I'm sure we've heard it in the industry many times before, but you know, when I hear someone, especially a customer that may be willing to buy a hundred or even a thousand dollar bottle of wine, make an offhand remark about the cost of a ten dollar chocolate bar being outrageous. It just makes my blood boil and thinks, and, and I, and I, when I'm in that situation, of course, I have the opportunity to explain to them what the economics behind it. But I, I do wish more people had an appreciation for what a late, incredible labor of love goes into craft chocolate and how this is not an industry for people that want to get rich. This is an industry right now, uh, for people that are really, really dedicated to something really special. I can tell you that that the craft chocolate makers are some of the most dedicated uh, to their craft. Farmers are some of the most, oftentimes the farmers are doing it against their own economic interests just to keep the local tradition and the local bean variety alive. 
And it shouldn't have to be like that. And uh, until we see the bar prices go higher, um, I think that it will, will continue to be a little bit like that. So I just wish the general consumer knew the economics behind an eight or a $10 bar of chocolate. There's no one laughing all the way to the bank like there is on a $100 or even a $20 bottle of wine sometimes. And I just wish people knew that. I've noticed a lot, especially in Asia, actually, of large manufacturers co-opting the term bean to bar. How do you think that that's going to play out over the next few years in particular? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't, this is not, you know, unique to the craft chocolate world. Regardless of the industry, at least with specialty food, anything that's cool and trendy, big, as long as it starts to get market share and make a lot of noise and start, as soon as it starts to become economically important, big business will be right behind to co-opt those terms and nothing will be safe. These are the cycles you go through in any sort of industry. You know, the innovators have to continue to innovate, have to find new ways to connect with their customer. And the the big guys are always going to be right behind you trying to co-opt those things. And if they're not, you better be really concerned then because they've decided it's not important and is a fad that is going to go away. So I think we should all be glad they're trying to do that because it shows that they're taking notice and they think that this is going to be an economically important category. And let's just hope they're right. My last question is just, why do you love chocolate in particular? I love chocolate, particularly from the first experience I ever had eating craft chocolate. It was actually Domori. And I remember I was learning, I was, you know, very familiar with, with, um, terroir and cheese. And I was a big time cheese geek, very educated uh, about cheese and charcuterie and, and a few other categories. And I was learning about wine at the time and, uh, you know, trying to blind taste test, like some of my sommelier friends on wines was, was fun, but it was like, not super fruitful. Like I, I didn't feel like I was that good at it. It kind of made me feel like an idiot. Like I didn't have a good palate or something if I wasn't able to, you know, blind taste test and determine these things. And when I tasted through, I, I had never tasted good dark chocolate at the time, but I had started reading a lot about it. But everything that I had ever tasted basically tasted like, you know, what I called grocery store chocolate, vanilla and cocoa butter and, and you know, burned material. And I, I wasn't super interested in it. But then as I was learning about terroir and wine, and I sat down with Domori and tasted through, this was, I think, in 2002, the fancy food show in San Francisco. And I tasted through three chocolates that they explained. The only difference was where the cacao beans came from. And the first one I tasted was a Madagascar, and it was tart and fruity. And the second one I tasted was a Venezuela that was kind of earthy and tobacco-y. And just the, that next chocolate that was so different from the first was so mind-blowing. I felt like this is terroir. This, I could easily blind taste these two again. Like you could ask me to do it a hundred times in a row and I would get it right a hundred percent of the time. And it was, that was so exciting to me. So beyond even just actually enjoying chocolate, which I totally do, I eat so much of it now, I probably enjoy it less than I used to because it's become a job. Um, but it's never not mentally stimulating to me. I find it so exciting and thrilling to be able to explore 
um, through taste. And I think that chocolate is quite possibly the best demonstration of that in any food or beverage category that I've found. So I, that's why I love it, is the ability to explore through taste. Mm-hmm. 